how you use them. Good morning. All the displays just went dark. So are we on the air or are we off the air? I, I have no idea. <laughs> but um, Tom Olson, we're here. And um, so it's, uh, it's good to be here. We got a lot going on today. And uh, we have got, um, it's going to be with us, uh, introduced in just a second, and Miguel, an entrepreneur. And so you'll learn a lot with him. He's serial entrepreneur, highly technological, and he's working on something right now that all of us should be interested in the state of healthcare, where it goes. But um, I'm also here with Kellyanne, the Swiss Army knife. Hello. Uh, she is back, but Kai, Kai is on a trip. Kai is on a, I think he's on a trip to see family, um, you know, to uh, you know, Norwegia. Is that where the Norwegians are? Yes. Norwegia or Norway? Norway. Norway. <laughs> But anyway, we miss Kai and everything and his insights and being here. But today, we got a little case study on what happened with the Titan sub. You have all know about what happened to the sub, but I'm going to take you a little case study and also talk about a couple of the times in history where entrepreneurs and these things happen. But before you put commercial people paying customers on there, you got to get over a thing called hubris. And so hubris is going to be the topic of the case study. Uh, this morning... Fortunately, no banks failed over the weekend. You know, we've been talking about that for a while. So maybe we're on a summer break from banks failing. Cross your fingers. Commercial real estate is out there, and that will be driving those bank failures. And there's going to be more this year, but fortunately not over this weekend. Um, nothing disastrous happened. You know, we heard uh, the Fed a couple weeks ago um, now saying interest rates are going, but we've seen the housing market right there. We'll have an update, talk all about that next week. But... What we did have over the weekend is, you know, world, you know, the world looks for stability, and all of a sudden over weekends things happen and you just can't get stable. So now we have a near coup or a practice coup or an approximate coup with the Wagner Group over there going up against Putin, and I guess they reached some sort of a truce. Guy's going to go to Belarus, but my goodness, with all the instability that is in the world out there, um, we really need stability. And stability, believe it or not, I believe comes from entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs b bring stability to life because they bring solutions. And sometimes solutions stabilize things that are destabilized. And you say, wait a minute, BizDoc, hold on. What about all these disruptors? Well, disrupting an industry to put something else, you may be disrupting that playing field or disrupting an industry, but you're trying to bring a new solution to people that maybe brings a little bit you know, a better quality of life or something. And so you're bringing solutions, stability, usefulness, and a brighter future. And yeah, you may be disrupting a market. And I want to introduce now Emmy Gal. And I'm going to have him introduce himself because he's working on a very, very uh, cool uh, product and solution that's providing early cancer detection. So I say, welcome. How are you? Thank you, Tom. I'm great. Thank you. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Well, you're a serial entrepreneur, so why don't you give everybody your, your, your quick bio, very interesting background you have, and then we'll talk about the company you're working on right now in the area of cancer. For sure. So um, my name is Emi, uh, originally from Romania. I studied uh, applied mathematics and computer science back in Bucharest. While I was in uh, my first year at uni, I started a software in the video advertising technology space. We actually built one of the first video ad servers on the internet. Um, that company led me to London. I spent seven years in London building it, and then it was acquired by a large advertising group in New York City, and that's how I ended up in, uh, in New York. And then I, I started Ezra because I'm personally at high risk for cancer, for melanoma. I have a couple of hundred moles on my body. It puts me in the highest risk bracket for skin cancer, and I've sadly had cancer in my family. My, my mother passed away from uh, cancer because she found it late. And so Sorry. the Ezra mission, uh, thank you. The Ezra mission hits very, very close to home. So, you know what? Companies usually get born out of a need and an inspiration. And you found both of those, unfortunately. Um, and my dad passed away very early, age 61, from cancer of the esophagus. That they believe that they believe was secondhand smoke. They say the odds were it was secondhand smoke, but nobody knows for sure. But um, got great treatment from MD Anderson. But even 
even his regular checkups never detected what was going on in the esophagus with yes. and and early detection is everything. We've been talking about breast cancer in the United States. Susan G. Komen has provided such awareness. We have fundraisers, 10Ks, all these things to bring um, early detection so that every woman can have mammograms and we have the, uh, the, the devices in every city so that we can do that for early detection. Then we have PSA tests that have really enhanced early detection. It's a blood test. It's not very expensive. In addition to the regular tests that no guy likes to go through when you go to your doctor. But all of that's in the name of early detection. So tell us a little bit about this particular solution in early detection and how it works and what you're doing because you've raised what 20 25 million dollars over two rounds of financing so yeah. you you have some real dollars behind it and you're trying to bring to market something that in addition to all these other tools that we have in life PSA mammograms that bring early detection to certain cancers so why don't you unpack this for us and, and take us through it for sure absolutely so two two things before i talk about the solution the first one is early detection is the way to beat cancer you know if you look at survival rates the five-year survival rate for late stage cancer is only 20 percent only two out of ten people who find cancer late survive the five-year survival rate for early stage cancer is 80 percent so eight out of ten people survive so early detection really is the way to beat cancer the problem is, for most organs, there's no way to screen, like pancreatic cancer or liver or gallbladder or brain and so on. You'll generally find out if you're symptomatic, and if you're symptomatic, it's too late. Yeah. So what we've developed at Ezra is this full-body MRI that is powered by a number of uh, AIs that enables us to screen for cancer in all of the organs you cannot currently screen for cancer in. Our scan takes about 60 minutes, and actually a few weeks ago we launched a 30-minute scan uh, and screens for cancer in 13 organs. Um, and the way it works is you go on Ezra.com, you book a scan, you visit one of our partner imaging facilities. We're live in five cities, about 16 facilities. You get a scan and then five business days later, you receive a, an AI supported report that tells you what we've found and whether there's anything of concern. That's fabulous. So how many employees you have now and how old is this particular company? Because you founded a couple companies over the years. Yeah, so we're a very young company, actually. We're four years old. We started scanning people in 2019. And we're also a very small team. We're just under 40 people. So what's the biggest, now you as a leader, so four years old and now you're in market and you can talk about the, the market you're in, so, and you're in several cities. Um, Give it, quickly run down those cities, and I'm going to follow up with a question here. Yeah, so we're in New York, San Francisco, LA, Miami, and Vegas. Got it. So you're in some very large centrally U.S. cities. It's easy to get to. So um, looking for Chicago, Midwest, Dallas, probably your next, your next look. So um, you as a leader, as you've grown from you know, that prototyping stage to actually being in market, a lot of people that watch here, Emmy, are entrepreneurs, and they may be operating a t-shirt company in Berlin or a technology company in Silicon Valley and all types of organizations in between. And they're always looking for people to help them with their path as a leader as they've continued to grow and develop. What has been your development over the last two years as you've now gone to five cities, in market, 40 people? Obviously, that's much different from those first years when you were prototyping, you had the idea and proof of concept. What adjustments have you had to make as a CEO, founder, and leader with your team in the last two years? It's a great question. So by far my biggest learning has been that it's all about the quality of your team. Like. Uh, in the past two years at Ezra, we've built an incredible uh, leadership team that, that kind of helps run the company. And I guess my biggest learning has been to hire people that are better than myself in all of the different areas of the business. And I'm, I'm really fortunate right now to work with a group of people for whom I would want to work for uh, if in a kind of different universe of our commercial lead, our scientists, our, and so on. I would love to work for those individuals. Um, at one point, you know, and, and that was my, my, uh, I guess, lens through which to look at uh, when hiring them. That is a great 
answer and what a great takeaway regardless of what company you're in you just said i want to hire people that i'd like to work for even if you look at them hey this is a base this is a medical engineer this is a biomedical engineer this is a biologist and they're they just got their masters or something you're hiring to work for them and you're looking at that person saying i'd like to work for them someday what a great way to test people. Would I ever like to work for this person someday as I'm building out um, high expertise people? And you in, in, in medicine, obviously you're hiring high-end biologists, molecular biologists, or, or the, the very people, um, imaging experts and the folks that are gonna make that, make that team for you. You know, what, um, who are you? Because a CEO, you really take out the E. We all come from somewhere. Most entrepreneurs are either product people or business development people. It's a fact. Very few CFOs launch companies. Maybe a few, but the majority come from a CTO, chief product officer, chief business development, because you know a market, you know an area, you see a need, and normally the CEO comes from that. So let's start with you first. Who are you? When you take the CEO away, who are you really underneath that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a scientist at heart, you know, I studied applied mathematics, computer science, I'm a, I'm a bit of a geek. Um, part of how I focused, I got to focus on Ezra is that I cycled through about a dozen different ways in which you could go uh, about solving the problem of early detection and, and figure out, figuring out which one works and which one doesn't and so on. And I really enjoyed that kind of almost scientific approach to finding a solution to, to a problem. In, in my role as kind of the, the, I guess, leader of the company, I really think I only have three, maybe four responsibilities. Uh, set the strategy and kind of the direction of the company. Hire the very best people I can find and kind of just talk about that. Raise money to uh, for these individuals to have resources to continue building and then keep people accountable. And I, I think if I'm doing those four things well, everything else will kind of come from that. You, you bring up something very interesting there. A lot of people that I've consulted with and talked to on small businesses, their first org chart looks like a wagon wheel. They're in the middle and they have all the spokes out there because everybody reports to them. And then one day, usually about a million dollars in revenue, they gotta add some sort of structure because the CEO, the founder, they have to stay in the lane that's gonna give the highest value and slowly move things off their desk so that they can do that. Because the bigger you go, the more complex you go, you're trying to hold these people accountable, and all of a sudden you have too many things on your desk. As you grew and developed, and I know this is not your first company, who was the most important people to have around you? You say, if I'm gonna stay here as the scientist, running strategy, hiring the best people, that are high-end experts to join me, and yes, raising money. If I'm gonna do that as this founder and CEO, I gotta keep things off my desk. As you develop, what things for you did you realize, I need key people here, and their job is to do those things great and keep them off my desk? Great question. So in, in both my previous company, Brainiant and, and Ezra, I think it's been two key things that I've had to bring in that really freed me up so that I can focus on strategy and product and so on. The first one is commercial. So I can sell and I can uh, meet with uh, imaging partners and so on. I wouldn't say it's my strong suit. And so uh, at, at Ezra, we brought an incredible uh, chief commercial officer, Jason Goodman, who's also an entrepreneur, started a number of companies himself, and now he runs our, uh, our commercial operation. And then secondly, on operations, I'm not kind of particularly inclined to deal with the kind of day-to-day -day ops of, of a business or in our case of kind of managing imaging partners. And so I've had to bring in a, a, a phenomenal operations lead who kind of uh, runs our operations day-to-day. -day. I think the, the important thing for a founder is to figure out what are you good at, focus on that, and kind of externalize everything else or not externalize but hire people for everything else. It might be that someone is really good at, at commercial and then they should bring folks in to be complementary for other areas. In my case, it's kind of I wanted to focus on product and strategy and bring in uh, folks to run everything else. There you go. Well, this is not your first company. 
what was your experience like and did you have any outside voices like maybe an investor or a confidant or a board member that sat with you and said hey you got to get this stuff off your desk can you think of the first time where you had to look at that and say this is what i'm really good at i'm the scientist and this is just taking up time what was that process like for you developing as a leader you know because we can all be founders it's hard to be the ceo and then it's really hard to actually be the leader did you have a confidant or board member or was it just yourself that kind of helped you draw that line and saying if i don't get these people like in commercial operations hired man the company's not going to go as fast as it needs to as you think back to that moment in your career perhaps prior company how did you come to that who helped you yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So in my previous company, it was actually my uh, my board. And one of the individuals on my board came and said, we were at maybe about a, just over a million dollars in, in annualized revenue. And uh, he, uh, this person, Andres, his name came to me and said, hey, I think you need a, a, a better chief commercial officer to really to take things to the next level. And it actually took me about two years to cycle through about two or three people until I found someone amazing that I could work with. And that really then catalyzed the business. Um, and, and that person uh, became, uh, Jace, uh, Jonathan was his name, uh, came our, became our chief commercial officer. And I believe he's still at the company that acquired uh, uh, my company. Uh, and this was kind of eight years ago now. Right. So you had, a, so you had an investor board member that was actually helpful. That's, that's, that's <laughs> so happens. important. It's, people, ask, people ask me, hey, will you be on my board? you be this? I said, yes, if I can be helpful, I'd be happy to consider a board seat. But I want to make sure I can be helpful. He says, nobody else says that. They just ask about the board fee and the stock. And I said, and I said that's pointless. You know, I, I want to know if I can be helpful. So I would say if, with the right construction, a board of directors can be phenomenal. Like at Ezra now, our, our largest investor and on our board, we have Rick Heitzman, who's the founder of First Smart Capital out of New York City. And Rick is just a phenomenal board member. I think he's been on the board of like 20, 30, uh, you know, unicorn companies over the past, uh, uh, over his career. And therefore he's seen a lot and he's able to uh, impart with that wisdom uh, with me. Incredibly helpful. So what is the grand vision for Ezra? Um, now people have gotten a, a little view for you. What is that grand vision and how do you roll that to your people to get them bought into that? Yeah, so our, our mission from day one was very, very clear, which is to detect cancer early for everyone in the world. That's why I started the company. That's my kind of personal ambition. I see myself working on Ezra for the rest of my career and trying to uh, bring that mission to uh, reality. The strategy to achieve the mission from day one was build a, a, a high-end product, like our full-body MRI initially priced at $2,000, 60 minutes, uh, to help people screen for cancer. Use the success of that to launch a cheaper product. Uh, that's our 30-minute scan that we launched a few weeks ago. That's $1,350. And then use the success of that to build a 10-minute full-body MRI that costs $500 that's reimbursed by uh, insurance. And that's kind of the, we're now at the phase where we're working on that $500 scan. And then ultimately we hope to be able to get insurance reimbursement and by doing that, uh, enabling everyone in the country to get scanned. So the five cities in here, you got Miami, New York, uh, Los San Francisco, San LA, and Vegas. And San Francisco, LA, and Vegas. So you've got, so if people are leaving California and driving through Vegas, they could do that. But what yep. what is the profile of the best patient? So if somebody's watching you right now and say this is really interesting, and they're a very healthy twenty five year old, but they've got aunts and uncles, moms, dads, grandparents. What is the profile of a person that you believe should get the scan so it can be part of your medical record and useful not only to you but your primary care physician as you just go through your checkups and you're going through life but you want to add this the same way you track your cholesterol and your triglycerides every time you go what is the profile and what is the timing where it's best to do this and then add it to your medical records for the rest of your your, your primary care physician to to do yeah. and, and to be useful to them in guidance. 
Yeah, so we think that starting the age of 40, 45, the latest, uh, people should be doing an, an annual full body MRI to uh, give themselves the best chance to detect cancer early. And uh, that said, I actually think it's really important for younger people to at least get a baseline scan, like get a, a full body MRI age 35, even though your risk might be lower for cancer at that age, it then gives you a a scan to compare with when you start doing annual scans um, right. starting age of 40. And that comparison, in, in our case, we use AIs to support that comparison. It's really, really important because it helps increase the probability that we'll find things really, really early because you can monitor the body longitudinally over time, which increases the um, sensitivity of the scan because we can, we can detect minute changes that might not be visible in a single uh, exam. That, that makes a lot of sense. It's similar to men. They say, hey, you know, in your mid-30s, have a PSA test. When you're doing a standard blood panel for triglycerides, you know, um, um, cholesterol, just the normal things that you're doing, uh, you know, a simple, you know, blood and urine test that you do with a uh, annual physical, ask for the PSA panel and make yourself a baseline. As people say, your PSA could be six or seven, and you say, that's high. Well, no, maybe yours is six or seven for years, but all of a sudden it jumps to 12. Now that difference is the flag, the warning sign for potential prostate cancer in men. Um, yes. So you, you need a blood baseline. My baseline was always two, three, and so I knew that was my baseline. But my doctor explained to me that my baseline could be eight. It could be nine, but that it stays that way, but knowing what your baseline is is critical. So when that changes, that's your flag for some advanced um, testing and diagnosis. Yeah. So you're looking at it from that same way that if you're in your 30s and it's it's with your your insurance will cover it or you can cover it and you get to the next stage. I think it was the third stage you said with your company where it's $500 full body scan. And now you can put that on file, say, hey, doc, here's a full body scan along with a little bit of AI analysis that I had done. Add this to my, to my medical records. So now you can, you have a baseline. You're, you're approaching it in that yes. same way. Absolutely. And you know, because you mentioned uh, prostate actually, very important to note is in prostate, the typical um, uh, way you get screened right now is you do a PSA and if your PSA is elevated and kind of significantly elevated, uh, they send you for a prostate biopsy and then kind of they poke your prostate at random in like 13 different locations in order to um, kind of hope to find uh, a lesion. There's a better way, which is you pair a PSA with a prostate MRI. And that means that you can monitor your prostate, not just from a biomarker standpoint, but from an anatomical standpoint, which increases your chances of finding early stage prostate cancer uh, even, even better. And then with prostate cancer, a lot of cancers are actually very slow growing. And yep. uh, there's a new kind of wave of, of uh, research that shows that a lot of prostate cancer should just be monitored. However, you don't really have easy ways to monitor them without companies like Ezra, where you can do a prostate MRI every year mm -hmm. uh, to see how your lesion in the prostate is progressing and whether it is accelerating in its growth, which would then indicate that it should be uh, treated. Got it. Really helpful. So it's simple. Give us the website address. Is Ezra? It's Ezra.com. Ezra.com. Yep. And when it comes to early detection cancer, there's nothing better than Ezra. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like to ask a couple, couple follow-ups. So people can go in Miami and then San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, Vegas, and New York. Where, yeah. where are the next cities coming? Yeah, so we, our goal is to be in the top 20 metros by the end of next year uh, in the U.S. The next ones that are high up on our list are um, Austin uh, in, in, in Texas, uh, Boston, Chicago, Seattle, um, and I believe there are a couple of other cities in Texas that we're uh, speaking with imaging partners for to, to launch, such as uh, uh, Houston uh, and maybe Dallas. Great. Cooper Clinic is very big in, um, in Dallas area where people have executive physicals, advanced physicals. And suddenly now you're bringing things down to the masses so you don't have to go to, you know, a, a $4,000 out of pocket, only partially covered by insurance to get a more significant view of the body. Exactly. Exactly. And we 
think that AI can help drive the cost down of these exams so that we can ultimately offer this kind of $500 full body MRI that um, one is affordable to more people, but two, at that price point, it becomes interesting for payers to start reimbursing it. And that's how we get to uh, screen everyone um, at, at risk okay. of cancer. I didn't catch it. Is the 500 full body with AI in market now, or is that the next level of the product? That's the next, yeah, that's the next product. The So we launched with a 60-minute $2,000 product, and then we uh, we just had an FDA-cleared AI come out a couple of weeks ago that enabled us to launch a 30-minute uh, $1,350 uh, product. And then within probably about two years, uh, we're going to be able to launch a 15-minute um uh, uh, $500 uh, full body order. So right now it's 30 minutes with AI for about 1300 bucks, what you just said? Yep, yep, exactly. 1300 US. Ah. Yep. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about you. Now let's, um, we've talked about the product and what people can do, how they can take advantage of it. And I'm, I'm very excited about what your company is doing personally because losing my dad when he was young, I had a sister, early detection. You know, she's been a, a breast cancer survivor now for a decade, you know, so that's all good. And so I'm a big fan of early detection. As long as you're not a hypochondriac and you're just going out and just spending money around for, for tests and vitamins and a bunch of unproven things. Um, but I, so I'm a big personal fan of, of what you're doing. But I want to talk about, I want to talk about you a little bit. As an entrepreneur, you know, what was the, you think one of the biggest errors you made and how did you deal with that with your staff? You, you know, they know that you've made a really bad decision or something's up. Did you have a, something like that happen and how did you handle it with the staff? And the reason I say it, a lot of entrepreneurs say, well, it was 15 years ago and I didn't do a good job. I kind of hid. I, didn't, I was not transparent with people. Today, I would do it differently like this. So regardless of what happened, can you give us an example like that? Because the people that are watching, they want to learn. And one of the best ways to learn, you know, like medical research is, is not to know what works as much as to know what doesn't work and why didn't it work. And that's like foundational to medical research. But look, we're talking about leadership in you. Can you open up a little bit for us? Yeah, for sure. So I can actually pinpoint very clearly the, the, the biggest mistake I've made, uh, which is we were fortunate to be able to raise a lot of money very quickly with Ezra, uh, in large part thanks to the prior success that I had and the investors had made money. So it's kind of, it was relatively easy for me to go out and raise money. Um, as soon as we raised money, I increased our costs way too rapidly and way too much. I kind of overspent on everything from, from marketing to growing the team to large and so on too quickly before we had product market fit, before we had something that we could like really scale and, and um, uh, before we had an operation that can sustain uh, the growth. That was my kind of biggest mistake. So kind of what I would caution founders is try to keep things as you know, bootstrapped as small as possible until one sees escape velocity in growth. And that's when you kind of start to um, increase the burden. Um, and that was a painful um, a moment for me. It also happened around 2020 when the pandemic hit. So we went from kind of having raised $20 million, growing the team massively, growing marketing expenditure, to being able to scan zero people for about four months because everything was was shut down due to COVID, um, and it kind of took a lot of reflection to undo that and um, uh, and and become more grounded in the product development and science and R and D and keep things slow. And then kind of we rebuilt from there, and now we have a a, a pretty incredible business. How did you um, talk with your leadership team and then with the uh, the rank and file of your company when that happened? It was hard. It was, uh, you know, I had to um, basically go and say, hey, I made a mistake. We, we, we uh, spent too much. We overhired. We are spending way too much on marketing, uh, you know, and not doing a pretty good job at it. Uh, we need to uh, redo all of this. And uh, it was a painful process. Uh, I was mentioning the value of, of board members earlier on. Um, I think our board was 
pretty helpful in that because Rick, whom I've mentioned, has been through a number of startups that kind of had made similar mistakes and was able to help me navigate. So I think not necessarily board members, but people who uh, it's really important to have around you, people who can uh, advise, who have a little bit more gray hair. I have some gray hair now, and, but you know there, there are folks out there who have a lot more than I do, and I, I've, I've started surrounding myself with them. There you go. Well, you've been very gracious. We, we asked for a, a half hour. You've been very gracious with it. What final bits would you give to entrepreneurs? And we're not talking about 18-year-old kids with hoodies making you know, the next software, although there may be some of those. But just in general, leaders that are growing and developing uh, a company, are there one or two key lessons you'd also like to share? For sure. So the first one is, you, as an entrepreneur, you really, really have to be very interested, passionate, motivated about whatever topic of area or, or area of business you've chosen because building a you know large sustainable successful company is really 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 hard and unless you're motivated by in our case the mission of the dead in cancer early and others the the, the, the pursuit of their um, area of interest unless you're really motivated by that domain you're likely to give up because of how hard it is that's number one number two I've mentioned this before, is companies are only as good as the teams that kind of form them. And so it's really important to hire the very, very, very best people you can find. And, and everything else will literally flow from that. There you go. Very much appreciate that. Well, it's www.ezra.com, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Las Vegas. Miami and New York, early detection cancer, half-hour scans right now are less than 1500 bucks, around 1350 bucks, And keep your eye on it because in the future, there's going to be more cities, more places. And the vision is to get to a 10, 15-minute, $500 scan for early detection cancer with AI so that you can give that to your primary care physician that you go to your annual checkups and if you don't you should have one so that you can hopefully reap the benefits of longevity because you catch things early when they are far less complicated less invasive and less deadly um, would you add anything to that hopefully I got the story straight I couldn't have said it better Tom I think you're hired you know, done. You know, it's, it's, uh... That was a really, really good pitch. Thank you. Oh, good. Thank you so much for being with us. We very much appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. This was great. Yep. Boy, there was a lot to learn there. But you see that? What was interesting is like hire people who I'd like to work for. I, I love that. I've never heard it stated like that. That even if you're hiring a new engineer, really smart to do something, what Emmy just said is hire somebody you want to work for. Um, that you could see yourself working for. I think that's just so powerful. Um, it's all about the team. And remember, you may have an idea. You could have a lot of ideas about a lot of things, a lot of sectors, a lot of places in life. But are you passionate? Are, is that passion going to carry you through the dark moments? Because if it's not and you're not passionate, then you just have an idea. You're just a smart person, clever person, had an idea about something. But if you're smart, clever, informed, and passionate, you could be the leader that drives that. And... Um, Really incredible. So I want to move on to, unless you have some thoughts or anything. No, you again summed it up perfectly. Yep. I want to move on to something. And the word of the day that I'd like to work with is a case study on hubris. And what is hubris? Hubris is getting your ego in, you know, wrapped around your intelligence. You know you know something. You know you're smart enough about it. And you're not listening to warnings. And you push forward. That is called hubris, and hubris can get people killed. I'm not going to go over the details of it. We've all heard about what happened to those five precious people that were on board the Titan sub that was going down. Now, this is commercial tourism. Yeah, they were scientists, but they're paying $200,000 for a commercial tour down to the Titanic. But you're also going into a very hostile environment. It's incredibly cold. The pressures are incredibly great. Communications to the mothership is difficult but important. And yet you're charging people for this. So you have to factor all those things in and have them figured out. And we now know what happened. They went down there and under these extreme pressures, 
the sub imploded. And if you saw any of the things on uh, the news reports about what happens when it implodes, those people didn't feel a thing. They probably even didn't know what happened because you're talking about six to 8,000 pounds per square inch. The human body is basically terrible. Just don't even think about it, but it's over fast. And there's no time to register the fear. And why did this happen? I want to talk a little bit about, about hubris. So hubris, I'm going to talk about Oceansgate. Now I'm repeating myself. We're going to talk about Oceansgate. I'm also going to talk about a company called De Havilland, and I'm going to talk about Boeing and how hubris got people killed. In this case, the center part of the sub is made out of carbon fiber. Carbon fiber is amazing. If you go look at any Ferrari or Lamborghini, the brand new ones sitting out there, you can see carbon fiber components. They're super strong and super lightweight, but they're not infinitely strong, and they're not infinitely you know, um, applicable to everything. And there were folks that were saying, and among them, a guy named James Cameron, who you may know him as a producer-director of Avatar, producer-director of Titanic, but he has also spent a huge chunk of his life becoming a dead, cold expert on underwater exploration. And he's actually been down to the Titanic wreck, I think the number is 33 times. But he says, I only go with certain organizations, and I only go on certain equipment. And Japanese companies have made phenomenal equipment with amazing levels of testing because this is a hostile environment. It's really cold, and the pressures out there are extreme, just absolutely extreme. Well, people were saying that the center part of that Titan sub, and we've all seen the pictures, a little white sub with a little sharp tail, and then the, the front which was titanium with that portal, the window. Um, the center part there that was built of carbon fiber, there's a lot of people that are experts in underwater exploration that said, this guy was a little cocky and a little sure of himself because people kept asking about testing and they kept asking about validation. You can do testing and validation unmanned of a progressive level underwater to test and prove out the capability of new designs to go into the deeps of our ocean for very interesting and good scientific reasons. In this case, that carbon fiber center shell was the problem. It ultimately imploded and the experts, we haven't seen pictures, but we've heard comments uh, from the US Coast Guard and the other people who were down there and found what they said were five major pieces of this, including the identified the front nose cone, uh, the, the, the front, the metal front that has the portal on it, is made out of titanium, as we've been told. He said, this thing compressed in a millisecond. We're talking millisecond. And it compressed, and the tail and the, um, and the nose cone would have come together, and that's that. But people were saying, you didn't really test this. You need to test this. If you know your history, going back in uh, 1963, I believe it was, 62, 63, when John F. Kennedy was president, the United States was in a arms war against what was then called the Soviet, the USSR, you know, United Soviet Socialist Republics, I think it's called. <clears throat> but that's back when, before they were all broke out into Russia, Belarus, Georgia, and all the stands, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and all that. And at that time, they were in this arms race and a submarine called the Thresher was built by the U.S. Navy. And a lot of subs were built in a place called um, Groton, Connecticut. Um, and there's a company there called the Electric Boat Company. There's a lot of you know, defense industry, uh, specifically in submarine warfare there. And they went out way off Cape Cod where there's deep water, where the shelf drops down, drops down, drops down underwater so they can go really deep. And they were going down at progressive depths to test the worthiness of the thresher. Now the thresher had been down for many tests, up, down, up, down, but now they were going progressively deeper. And they reached down there to a point where they ran into some trouble. They were trying to get to surface and they couldn't and they began to gradually sink further and they got to what was called crush depth where the pressure of the ocean is greater than the, than the submarine's design and it imploded, and we lost 150 people, including submarine designers. So this has been going on for a long time. Why do I say that? That's 1962. 
We're 60 years from that, so we've had a lot of knowledge. And there were people that knew what they were doing that said Ocean Gate did not do what they felt was appropriate testing because they went down and it worked a couple times. Hey, it worked. We went down. My understanding is this is Mission 5. These people died on Commercial Mission 5, and there was four or five missions in advance where they took oceanographers. I think there was somebody, a producer from Discovery Channel, but there's a list of people. But all those people on those tests said the same thing, not every single one of them, but I think the majority of them said, hey, when we went down there, we lost communication. Oh, so maybe the radio systems or the systems for communicating underwater weren't perfect yet. Yeah, they said that they really needed to really conserve batteries so they would turn off all lights except the computer and they would break these glow sticks, little green glow sticks, like you maybe give your kid Halloween walking around with them, you know, to be seen for cars at night, those. They had that and they said, wouldn't you think they built in enough battery power to do the things they do here? So there was that. People also said that the, um, uh, the CEO Stockton Rush was piloting once, and he said, oh, I have to reboot these computers. You're on your way down. You're way underwater, dude. And he rebooted his, the computers that were there. So it's like, why is that happening? So there's like, check, 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 check. A lot of people were saying, you know, it made me a little bit nervous going down there. Now, why would they be taking producers from networks and other people down there. That is the job, what you're, I'm just describing, of them to be doing the testing with their own people. Then you do, which sometimes in software you'd call it alphas. Then you get to beta and you invite some people in order to be part of beta tests and finally you do commercial release. The discipline of making software is no different than the discipline of designing this sub, except the procedures and the consequences are a hell of a lot different when you start putting people in it. And so I, everything I've read, I believe CEO Stockton Rush was full of hubris. He wanted to get going. He was out there raising money. One of these people said he came to their home and he had pitched them. It was a couple that said, we don't want to go. And they did not go on this trip, number five, and now said they sit back with this kind of surreal feeling that, wow, that, that, that could have been us. And so you also have, you know, the progressive nature of it. Okay, BizDoc, what do you mean by progressive? Well, testing things that fly, that are launched like rockets, or that go into the depths, there are a lot of pressure changes and incredible um, engineering uh, stresses that come on those things, whether it's a rocket, an airplane, or an underwater sub that require a whole different set of analysis and testing. And what was interesting here is clearly James Cameron and others were saying that Stockton Rush rushed it. And so they say in his hubris, he got himself killed and four other people, and it's a tragedy. I'm gonna show you, take you through a case study. History repeats itself, just sometimes you don't recognize it. But here's, I'm going to take you through some things where history absolutely repeated itself. Um, ever heard of de Havilland? De Havilland was an aircraft maker in the United Kingdom, de Havilland. And they built a, um, uh, a series of airplanes, such as this one we're going to show you. This is called the Mosquito. And this airplane was built around World War II. And so, and you can see the, the symbol on the side of the aircraft for the um, okay, we're going to get that in a minute here. Um, for it was a military jet that was for the um, Royal Air Force. And so, known for making these great aircraft. And they started in 1949 to prototype the first jet aircraft that would be commercial. And it would carry, carry people. And so I think we have the first de Havilland Mosquito, so let's take a look at that. So you can see what this is. This is de Havilland, de Havilland Mosquito. Very successful uh, um, bomber that was built for the Royal Air Force. The target there is a symbol for the RAF, Royal Air Force, the UK. So in other words, this is a company that knew what they were doing when it came to building planes. Then they built this plane called the Comet. So we're going to take a look at this now. This is the de Havilland Comet. 
Look at that. See those two holes? Those were jet engines that they called the ghost engines. So there were <clears throat> jet engines inside the wing. This plane held about 25 to 35 people in addition to the crew and luggage. And this was, you're looking at, the first commercial jet airliner ever. You can see the front very sleek and everything. So this aircraft um, was uh, built 1949 with its prototype, and it had a commercial debut in 1952. So in 1952, it has its commercial debut. It could reach speeds of 500 miles an hour, which cut the time going from New York to London in half. Because you had Pan Am, you see these big pan pictures, these old Pan Am jets with the four propellers. It's just amazing. But they were big propellers. They only flew 250, 275 miles an hour, something like that. And here you had this fly 500 miles an hour, and it had an altitude of 40,000 feet. Well, what do you know about 40,000 feet? You've all seen movies where airplanes traveling up there, window breaks open, and you know people get sucked out and all this drama. But that's real, because up at 40,000 feet, there's a whole different set of stresses that are up there versus only 10,000 feet. But at 40,000 feet, you can fly faster and above weather. You're above the clouds. You've all seen that, looking out there, you see the clouds and everything. So you can go places faster, you're above the weather, you fly around weather, all these things that make commercial air travel efficient. So here you have the de Havilland Comet, born in 1949, launched in 1952. And then something happened. In January of 1954, 20 minutes after taking off a de Havilland Comet broke up mysteriously. Remember, this is before terrorist bombings and before suicide bombers and before people put a bomb in luggage. This is before all that. This is before Pan Am uh, 104 that crashed in Lockerbie, Scotland because Libyan-sponsored terrorists downed it, that 747 with people on it. This is before all that. This thing breaks up. It wasn't shot down. It wasn't a bomb. And they're trying to figure out why did this thing break up and crashed into the Mediterranean right near the island of Elba. And if you know your history, I think that's where Napoleon was exiled, was the island of Elba. All 35 people on board Paris. It's like, um, I think it was 26, 27 passengers and 8-9 crew. They couldn't figure out why. The Havilland engineers are going through and trying to figure out why did, the, why did this airplane fall out of the sky without a mayday signal from the pilot. So something suddenly happened, not progressively. What do we know about the news this weekend, Kellyanne? That sub went and imploded suddenly, not progressively. Did they have a notice? Had they dropped their ballast and going to the surface? Some people said, so that would mean that Stockton, you know, uh, make sure I said that right. That, yeah. Yeah, Stockton Rush knew there was a problem and he was heading for the surface, you know. Um, so maybe they had some awareness. But the actual disaster happened like that. Well, that's what happened to the de Havilland Comet. But why? So they, they made a bunch of changes, made a bunch of things going on. And remember I told you that was in January 10th? So I think they were grounded for the better part of a month while they did these and they went back to flying. On April 8th, now we're talking January 10th, April 8th, January, February, March, April. 90 days later, it happens again. South African Airways departs Rome for Cairo, flying across the Mediterranean. Rome, Italy to Cairo, south. 14 passengers and crew. As it climbed toward 35,000 feet, it gave a radio message. It says, hey, I got this compass heading. I'm heading on my way. And suddenly, it breaks up and falls into the Tyranian Sea there. And the uh, next day, they found floating debris. And they also were able to go down and salvage pieces in the water. It was right near the uh, island of uh, Stromboli, believe it or not. Everyone dies. So this is the second failure of a comet in just three months. BOAC grounds the entire fleet. That's British Overseas uh, British Overseas Air Company, I think it was, BOAC. I may have that wrong, but it was the name of the airline. 
and de Havilland's on doing all this research. The British um, uh, Air Ministry, which is like their FAA, Federal Aviation, revokes the Comet's license to fly. You cannot fly. You can't test fly. You can't take commercial people. You're grounded because they had to go figure out what was going on. And this is what they did. Um, let's take a picture here. They were analyzing the side of the aircraft, and you notice it had square windows. And you see those arrows where they, they could see where it tore. And they said, it's kind of interesting. Why is the aircraft kind of tearing almost like on dotted lines? So they did a thing where they took a fuselage from a de Havilland Comet, and they put it in a water tank that they could then hyper-pressurize. So they're trying to simulate, using a water tank, the plane under pressure as it's flying. Because they're trying to figure out, why do we get up to 40,000 feet and this thing basically tears apart? And there's no mayday from the pilot. There's no shaking or rattling and something's happened. It just tore itself apart and fell out of the sky. Here's what happened in the water tank. This is not a part of the aircraft from one of the crashes. This was the water tank. They did the water tank, and during the testing, they suddenly have this rupture. And they look at it, and they realize that they had not sufficiently tested or knew about the long-term effects of going up under pressure, come back down, no pressure. Going up pressure, going back down, no pressure. Think of it this way. These airplanes going up and down, up and down on all these flights were progressively pressuring and what's called fatiguing the aircraft. They figured out and they came back and said that based on what they saw in the water tank was that the comet fuselage and airframe could be expected to fail and just rip apart from progressive fatigue from 1,000 to 9,000 pressure cycles. We call those flights. Guess what? The accident that went in the Mediterranean by the island of Elba, 1,290 flights. And the South African Airways that was going from Rome to Cairo, 900 flights. Right where the engineers, once they had done this testing, figured it out. They said, you know, around 1,000 flights, anything above that, you've got metal stress and fatigue. But look at what they did. They could have tested this. They could have figured it out. But we've been building airplanes forever. We've been building airplanes since World War II. But this was the first commercial jet airliner flying 500 miles an hour at 40,000 feet. And it looks like it, more testing was needed because the more they did, the more they found out that this, the airline was doomed by its own design. A combination of the way they built the airframe, the type of aluminum they used, how close together the, um, the fasteners and bolts were, and the square windows. Look at all that. Look at all those things they discovered that with more research, they could have found out, hey, you're putting square windows on an airplane, you're doing this, 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 and this, we had a problem. You know what it was? It was hubris. De Havilland was still run by its family members who believed they had built this amazing jet and they wanted to get it into service to be competitively in front of other people. Hubris got a total of 75 some people killed on these. By the way, there would be another comet that would fall out of the sky flying into a severe storm. And the storm was so severe that it also collapsed the fuselage. And that, that one crashed. That was related to a storm and the pilots should not have been attempting to fly in that storm, but the same dynamics were there. That when you got these stresses on it, that it was beyond that the actual stresses of repeated flights or of a massive storm was beyond the, what the airplane could bear. And yet you're trying to put this into 10-year service life to carry people and commercial things? When test pilots die, it's a tragedy, but they accept the risk as test pilots. When people are paying money commercially, it's, it's hubris, liability, carelessness, recklessness that leads to loss of civilian life that are paying money. This is hubris, folks. This is hubris. And I'm going to give you one more example. Do you remember the 737 MAX a couple years ago? In 2019, Boeing 737. Now, everybody knows what a Boeing 737 is. If you're here in America and you've ever flown southwest, 
All they fly is Boeing 737s. It's an incredibly reliable airplane that's been around for years and years and years. <clears throat> they introduced a new version with advanced flight software and in an advanced design. And it was called the 737 MAX. And it was in service for a very short time when on October 29th, 2018, in Indonesia, Lion Air flying a new 737 MAX. Remember, it's a brand new airplane. It became impossible for the pilot's control and the software kept trying to tip the plane down. The pilots are trying to get it back up. It keeps trying to tip down. It tips into a dive, and the, the airplane software won, and all the people on that aircraft lost. They were all killed in Indonesia. So they start looking at, well, you know, we'll look at some things. Maybe the pilots weren't properly trained. So hubris. Boeing should have grounded the entire fleet. They didn't. And then in March, five months later, Ethiopian Airlines 302 on March 10th, same thing. The pilots are taking off and they're saying, this airplane keeps wanting to pitch down because the software on it had bad readings from sensors and the pilots are fighting the plane. Then the software is saying this, pilots are saying that, they can't disengage it and the Ethiopian aircraft goes down. On both flights, 346 people lose their lives over what? Bad software, bad sensors, that were tested improperly. Guess what? A whistleblower would leave Boeing and say, you know the FAA that's supposed to certify? They so trusted Boeing that Boeing and its hubris were able to push the United States FAA to approve the 737 MAX. And yet the software that was in there and the way the sensors were set up, it gave bad readings and it said, no, we gotta, gotta go this way. So the planes are trying to pitch down. If you've ever thought about flying or being a pilot, just remember two things. Houses get bigger bad, houses get smaller good. You know, so if the plane is trying to pitch down and buildings and things on earth are getting bigger, this is horribly bad, especially on commercial airliners. But there is hubris there and the ability in that hubris to influence the United States FAA that approved it. Well, obviously after the two disasters, it gets pulled and didn't fly for a long time. As a matter of fact, Southwest and other airlines, you could say you don't want to fly on a 737 MAX. This is after it was recertified, put back in the air, and Southwest wouldn't charge you a change fee. They'd say, okay, you can fly on this. That's going to be an older 737, not the MAX. But people were very concerned about it to the point that airlines that had bought these very expensive multi-multi-multi-million dollar aircraft they're fixed, they believe they're perfectly fine now and they can fly and there hasn't been any incidents since with the sensors and the software repaired, you know, updated, tested fully. But people still say, I'm not getting on a max. And so airlines had to do that. So where's the message and the lesson for you and me? It was hubris that overcame Stockton and all the things he could do building this sub and we're going down there and 10 Voyages into it. The 10th voyage is what we believe is the right number here. Four to five tests and then mission number five of people. Does that sound like the comet? A little like the comet? 100%. That you got going? Hey, our airplane's in the air. What a great thing. We're the first jetliner. Go us. A thousand flights into it. All that fatigue takes over and they're falling out of the sky. In this case, it only took the 10th, approximately what everyone believes to be, the 10th or maybe 11th voyage down the Titanic when the stresses that had repeated on that hull made of carbon fiber that other people would be like, that's not the way I would build that, imploded and killing the five people on board and we lost a brilliant oceanographer and we lost a, a British billionaire and a Pakistani billionaire and a son. Those are the tourists that were lost along with French oceanographer James Cameron, very upset about it, was a great guy, one of the, the world has lost one of the foremost experts on underwater archaeology and studying the things of the deep, lost him thanks to hubris. And yet 60 years ago, something similar happened with a not fully tested brand new design and they thought it was working for a year and then they approached a thousand flights 
when the design of those windows and the airframe and the fatigue got to the point that they didn't even know that plane was unsafe from day one. <clears throat> we can go there. We look at the 737 MAX and what hubris and the ability to influence the FAA did. We also look at the Challenger disaster, you know, the O-ring disaster, and the, um, the United States lost the space shuttle. Hubris was at the core of it. Let me tell you something. You don't have to be in something that has got human life at risk where hubris can hurt. You can launch software without testing and lose your reputation and have to lay off people that you shouldn't have had to lay off because suddenly people won't use your software because it wasn't ready for prime time. You can do it that way. You can put out food products that make people sick and thank God no one dies, but you lose your reputation. And sometimes it's hubris and the desire to stay ahead. But you can also build in something called patience, prudence, and testing. PPT, patient, prudent, testing. And not testing forever, but put enough QA into your software so you don't embarrass yourself and, and that you don't lose your reputation, have to lay off people that work so hard on that software. You know, protect them from themselves with testing. And that is the job of every leader, not just to lead with vision, but to also lead with practical assurance of the quality of the product. Because hubris, ah, we're just doing it, just do it, just do it gets people killed in certain situations, you can also lose your company in other situations. And that's what happened here. And so hubris is a horrible thing. And so I, I hope that case study, God rest the souls of the people from the Titan, but I hope we can see that history has repeated itself because technology has become more advanced, but humans and our ability to, to kid ourselves and lie to ourselves and to be full of ego and hubris hasn't changed in 80 years of high technology, yeah, transportation and ocean exploration. We got time for one question in the chat here. I got people saying, let's ask a question, let's ask a question. We're coming up to an hour, I wanna ask a question. <laughs> we hear you, we hear you. I think we have, we have a question. We have a question from Jack Kling. Uh, looks like Emmy got meaningful help from a mentor type. So my question is, how important is a mentor for a startup and established entrepreneurs? Wow, how important is a mentor for a startup? Well, we just heard the founder of Ezra, Emmy Gal, say he had a board member that helped him get through talking about a mistake with his people, where he had spent too much, he had raised money and they spent way too fast, and then they were close to running out of money, he had to make layoffs and adjustments or something, and they had to tell his people, I made a mistake there, and how important the board member was there. Let me tell you, you will not find mentors that understand your invention or they can build it for you. That's you. Your product vision, that's you. Your product technology, if you're a software designer, that's you. But when it comes to making critical decisions and having someone to bounce it off, having a mentor is critical. And they don't have to understand your industry, but they do have to bend around and understand management decision processes. You can find a mentor in places like Vistage, and I'm not promoting Vistage, you know, that can be expensive for some. But you can find, you know, um, I'll tell you a couple places you could look. You could call the Economic Development Council for your local city. Find out do they get together at meetings. You can find people there, make friends with them. But I always encourage people to find a mentor. A human mentor could be someone from your church, just talking about character, integrity. But when you're talking about leadership, you want to find someone that's built something. And there are my favorite place, so Economic Development Council, they have meetings, you can go there and meet people, introduce yourself, hi, I'm just here kind of learning from other people, from the pitfalls and the successes they've had. Other places I love to find mentors, angel investor groups. How did they become angels? They've put together an amount of money that they're able to invest in. Some of those may be wealthy physicians who just want to do something more. But many of them are entrepreneurs that have had an exit that want to invest some of their own money. And I think those are great places to find a mentor and maybe even find investment. You know, because I'm going to teach you a word here called smart money. Smart money is money that can help you because they understand your product or your industry, or smart money can also be someone that's built something, you're in software, 
they built software. Even if your software is for medical application, they built software for databases. There's still things that are in parallel that a mentor from an angel group can be incredibly helpful. Maybe you put them on your board of advisors, but definitely you put them in your phone and build a relationship with them. But that's one of my favorite places to find mentors is through angel association. But they also do with community economic development groups and then also other entrepreneurs you run into. Hey, do you have any smart board members that have been there, done that? Not just someone maybe an expert on medicine because you're in medical technology, but someone just in general sense that's walked the walk, talked the talk, raised money, got scars on their back, his or her, you know, and have been there. Uh, great place. That's a great, great question. And so I'm gonna wrap on that. And so I hope this was helpful, that you got a lot out of Emmy and his amazing knowledge and insights into building a couple companies and can maybe take advantage of Ezra early screening for cancer for you or in your family. Interesting product. As well as I hope this case study in hubris was helpful to you. Um, I thank you so much for being here. I'm Tom Els with the BizDoc. I hope I left you better than I found you and a place where valuetainment can leave you better then we found you is the Vault Conference coming up August 30th to September 2nd at the Diplomat Hotel right down in Hollywood, Florida, which is around the corner of Fort Lauderdale Airport. Patrick Bet David will be there. You know who he is, the new minority owner of the New York Yankees. Uh, Tom Brady will be there talking about leadership, teamwork, and winning championships when the teams and the people were very different and how he applied leadership through it. Mike Tyson talks a lot about strategy and fighting and that there's a lot of him having to ha always have a battle plan. And then Will Gadara, fantastic book, um, talking about EMP, the number one restaurant in America. Uh, he grew it to that and how he built teams and how he continued to serve his clients with unreasonable hospitality. All gonna be there to provide you feedback so that valuetainment can leave you better than we found you, so you can fly higher, do more, and achieve for your business something truly amazing tomorrow. And we will be here to teach you, to serve you, and then clapping for you and cheering for you as you do it. Take care. We'll see you next time. I'm Tom Ellsworth, the BizDoc, and I'll say it again. I hope I left you better than I found you.